Pittsburgh Deep Dive Podcast, Episode 3, The Man of the Forest, by Zane Gray. The Gutenberg Deep Dive Podcast is your monthly review of a best-selling novel from a century ago. I'm Mike, and with my co-host John, we'll be exploring literary gems from 100 years ago. As a reminder, this book and all of the books we discuss on this podcast are available for free download from the Gutenberg Project. A link is in the podcast description. As with previous episodes, we'll start by discussing the author, then give a quick plot summary, followed by a general discussion of the book. Lastly, we'll give the book an entirely subjective numeric score you can take to the bank. But before we begin all that, a few quick words. We continue to make tweaks to the format of this podcast and appreciate any and all feedback, good and bad, from our listeners. Mike and I hope to make this podcast as fun and interesting to listen to as it is to make. Also, starting in 2021... We're going to be looking for some guest reviewers to join us. If you're interested in reading a century-old book and talking about it with us, please reach out. All right, back to today's novel. Mike, what can you tell us about the author, Zane Gray, besides that he was probably paid by the word based on my reading? Oh, John, the things I have learned about Pearl Gray Zane, born in 1872 in Zanesville's Ohio. All right, so... Spoiler alert number one, Zanesville, actually named after one of his ancestors. Who would have guessed it? Okay, I was, I was, I was going to ask, like, <laughs> yeah. go back and rename it. Okay. <laughs> I was wondering myself when I first looked this up because it sounds like the punchline of a joke, like a really old joke. But hey, it turns out it's true. Um, so Pearl Grains, uh, Gray Zane, right? So apparently he was named Pearl because the Queen of England at the time loved that color. He hated that, so he changed the name to to Gray, and it was Gray with an E. It was originally Gray with an A. So that should tell you a lot about who this guy is right from day one. <laughs> okay, so a little bit of, uh, of disturbing news at first. So he had a relatively uh, abusive father. His father found his first book, in fact, was so annoyed that he wrote it, he beat him and ripped it up. Uh, his mother tried to protect him from his father's anger through most of his childhood. So... Did not live an easy life. Now, his father was a dentist. His father traveled around the state practicing dentistry. Zane actually practiced dentistry with him. And by practice that, I mean he did things, but was not licensed to do them. Literally practicing <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the more generic term. That's not right. practicing as in, I'm a licensed, know what I'm doing. He was a, a pre-DMD, you know, the one with the shaky hands you don't really want. Well, the state actually stepped in and stopped him from doing that at a time. Uh, he, he then abandoned that. Now, this is a smart guy from pretty early on. He knew that he was a very athletic guy. Uh, he was able to attend the University of Pennsylvania on a scholarship for baseball. And he became a very successful athlete, actually, along with his brother. The two of them were very successful. His brother went on to become a minor league baseball player. Uh, he also played baseball for a minor league team in East Orange, New Jersey, actually, which is uh, on my way to work. He later became a dentist in New York City. Real licensed, like a real licensed dentist. Learned what he was doing. Okay, good. good. <laughs> now, wonder of wonders, he hated that. His real passions were fishing. He loved fishing with his brother while he was doing that. And that was his thing. He loved nature. That was his passion. So when he was getting out there, he actually, while he was fishing with his brother, ended up taking photos of his future 17 year old wife. Now, remember that. That'll become uh, important later on. So he was a fishing nut. He had a little bit of money to his name, but he ended up spending all of his money to go and really research 
the books that he wanted to publish. Now, keeping in a theme with some of our previous authors, publishing his book was his real passion. He loved nature, but even more, he loved writing. And he was willing to sacrifice everything he had to do that, which in fact, he did. So lucky him, he marries in 1905, Lena Elise Roth, who had a little bit of an inheritance that he was able to acquire and use to travel. He ended up moving to Pennsylvania. He traveled all around the country after that. One important thing, at this point, really around 1910, he was starting to make about $100,000 a year. He had published enough. He was published enough in magazines. He had started to publish some books and he was now getting paid Originally, a lot of the writing was by the word. He was now getting paid as a contract worker. And it seems like many of the authors that you and I have discussed ended up doing that. They had to make it big with one short story or one book. And then all of a sudden, they were kind of writing their own ticket. Speaking of writing his own ticket, he was famous for never revising a manuscript after his first draft. Again, I think that's going to become relevant. (laughs) You don't say. Never would have guessed it. (laughs) Okay, so his first super successful book was called Riders of the Purple Sage. It is a classic Western. It is, in fact, one of the defining books in the genre. He was the best-selling author of 1920, as we saw here with this book. He ended up writing 56 novels and 34 short stories. He wrote about 9 million to 10 million words over all of the stories. By way of reference, Stephen King wrote around, has written around 14 million, just to give you a sense of scale here. Very importantly, this guy was famous. So many of the famous actors actually got their start in books or in movies based on his books, including Gary Cooper, Randolph Scott, William Powell, Faye Ray, Victor Fleming, who was the later director of Gone with the Wind, and Henry Hathaway, who directed True Grit, both classics, also learned their craft on his films. There's actually a Zane Gray Museum in Pennsylvania. Uh, In fact, there's several around the country, but that's one of the most famous ones where he used to live. Okay, so coming to some of our conclusion about this guy, there were a couple of quotes that I really wanted to pull out because he's so fascinating. He reminds me a lot of famous authors today. One New York Times review says, and it was complimentary, his sentences say what he wants them to say. The clarity of thought and strength of phrase are important elements in his technique. Okay, here's another review. His art is archaic with all the traits of archaic art. It lacks fluence of facility. Behind it always, we feel a pressure towards expression, a striving for a freer and easier utterance. Now, some of the seedy side. He was once sued for plagiarism. One of the authors who wrote an article about him after he was deceased said he was as much a brand as a writer and even more so, in fact. He was famous for traveling so much. He actually traveled to Australia, California, a variety of other places, Arizona. He had a fishing lodge at the Winkle Bar in Oregon. In fact, he was at his Altadena estate in California, where he lived for most of the the end of his life. And he died in 1939 of a heart attack as he practiced casting his fishing line. Recently, and I found this interesting, in 2006, there was a book released. The book was written by a gentleman named Thomas Pauley. And the New York Times review of this book says, after summarizing the nearly unanimous critical drubbing his novels received, and he did receive a lot of drubbing when he was writing it, partly because of passages like these long-winded things that you read. The author of his biography goes on the offensive. The author himself wrote, contrary to negative assessments, he was in fact a skillful writer who combined easy readability with artful embellishment. And here the New York Times review cracks me up. It says, no, he wasn't. He was a profoundly bad writer (laughs) who combined mawkish sentimentality with geographic fabulism, with the exception of his fishing essays, which are devoid of the pinch stick overexertion of his fiction and are quite excellent. Last piece about this guy. This guy's a creep, John. 
He was arrested in a brothel at 16. He was arrested again when he was at UPenn because he was being sued by a woman who said he had fathered a child with her, which he settled while he was traveling. He cheated on his wife extensively. He actually brought younger relatives or acquaintances of his wife with him. And she knew that this was taking place. She hated it, but he was traveling. He would write her letters back. While he was traveling, he actually took nude photos of these women. And he had the nerve once when his wife told him she was going to go dancing by herself. He said, I'm sorry. No, you can't go to the dance. I refuse to allow my sweetheart to be hugged by a lot of men. To be brief, I'm a little disgusted. So, John, I think this is a really good snapshot of this guy's life. Uh, his fame, his fortune, his experience, his background, who he is. And boy, John, I cannot wait to get into this conversation about this book. So what you're saying is he was a moral, upstanding citizen, <laughs> a brilliant writer, a family man. Oh, you summed it up like a New York Times book reviewer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the whole time I was reading this book, I'm thinking, God, this would be so much better if it just had a good editor. It, it's, it was the first thought I had. And when I finished like chapter two, I'm like, if this just had a decent editor, there's so much here. And by the time I finished, I said we could shave off 20% and have a better book. I totally agree. And, and we'll get to that, I guess. But um, the other thing you brought up, which is interesting, is the sheer number of films based on his works. And we've seen that with a couple of the authors we've talked about. And I think it's because Hollywood is just pumping out so many films so fast. And they didn't have as much of a in-person writing staff that they were just reaching out and grabbing whatever was well-known. It was all pop-lit turning into pop-film. That way, you've read the book. Come see the movie. So that's pretty interesting that 100 movies made out. Again, I went down to Goodreads to kind of see what else I could see about the author in general. He's got a, he's rated out of five stars, 3.85 out of 52,000 ratings. I mean, that's a lot of ratings <laughs> averaging in. But as I was scrolling through him, I saw a lot of either five-star, one-star, five-star, one-star. It was very much of a, I enjoy reading this because it's an easy read. I pick it up, I put it down. It's not a deep thought. Or I was expecting more from the one of the best-selling novelists of the 1920s. And so it was really back and forth all over Goodreads in terms of the ratings it got. But 52,000 ratings, 3.85. This book was actually one of his highest-rated books. And again, I don't know if that's because it was just People see that it's the most popular. They expect it to be good. And that sets a certain bar for them. Kind of like if I open a bottle of wine and tell you, this is a good bottle of wine. <laughs> and you'll take a sip and go, yeah, that's a pretty good bottle of wine. Not knowing that I opened up a bottle of Two Buck Chuck and put it in a decanter back in the kitchen. And by the way, if Two Buck Chuck wants to sponsor us, please feel free. It's just $5 to advertise. We will drink it on air and talk about how great it is. So, and we'll come to this, I would not have given it the four out of five stars that it's received on average out of 1,300 ratings on Goodies, four, four out of five stars. That's a lot of averaging in to get to four stars, and I don't think it was worth it, but I guess we'll come to that later on. Overall, though, uh, great guy. I think we should look for more of his books and uh, support support his works. Cause, oh, for uh, sure. <laughs> Actually, it does make me want to see if I can find in Gutenberg maybe some of his fishing books, because apparently those are very good, and I could really improve my fishing game, and a guy who's traveled the world doing it, maybe the guy who could help me. 
I, you know, something. it actually did make me want to read those. <laughs> I can see the elements that would be fascinating. This guy could really describe casting a line. <laughs> really? He's done it a gazillion times. Literally died doing what he loved. Yeah. <laughs> and how can we condemn a man like that? Easily. Let's get to it. <laughs> All right. So we finished the author. Let's focus down to the book. And we're going to begin a new thing here on Gutenberg Deep Dive. If it fails miserably, you'll never hear it again. But I wanted to condense some of our plot summaries. So we're going to have the new official Gutenberg Deep Dive 10-sentence summary. (laughs) And I'm going to try to do this one a little in character, if Mike can avoid laughing at me. Out in the Wild West, (laughs) a small settlement town of Pine, wherein two ranchers are fighting over old claims, and Milt Dale resides as a part-time hermit, hunter, and tracker. Through a lucky twist of fate, Dale overhears an outlaw named Snake Anson being directed by the rancher Beasley to kidnap his rival's niece before she can arrive and lay claim to a ranch he wants to take over. Dale, along with several freelance Mormon cowboys, intercepts the niece Helen and her sister Bo and whisks them off to Dale's secret hiding spot in the woods. There, Dale teaches Helen and Bo riding, tracking, hunting, and expounds on his natural philosophies. Helen and Bo are claimed by their uncle, Al, and head off to his ranch, where he dies shortly thereafter, the inheritance still not fully settled, and the farm hands in rebellion. One source of help is a love interest of Bo's, known as Tom Las Vegas Carmichael, who befriends the girls, and also happens to be a well-traveled and skilled gunfighter, on top of a general ranch and expert. Things come to a head soon when Bo is kidnapped by Snake Anson's gang and Helen literally bodily thrown off her ranch by Beasley's hired goons. Dale tracks down Bo, but she is saved more from the infighting among Snake's gang after Beasley double cross and a Texas outlaw who finds a line he won't cross in this kidnapping business. Beasley is dealt with when Carmichael goes berserk in a bar, shoots two of Beasley's men, and Beasley fails to meet him in a one-on-one fight, thus branding him a traitor. In the end, Helen gets her ranch back, Bo marries Carmichael, Helen marries Dale, and everyone lives happily ever after. You know how hard I was working not to chuckle. <laughs> By the way, John, my congratulations. My two cents, we're doing this again, but I can't wait to see what the next book is about <laughs> because this seems very unique to this book. <laughs> and, and dear listener, if you haven't read the book, I didn't miss a whole lot of plot points. <laughs> that 20% was summer. no joke. <laughs> So that's the summary. You know, I skimmed over a few things, a lot of it being descriptions of the locations. There are a few other bit players who are really, again, kind of cardboard stand-up people you just need around. I was serious about the Mormon cowboys who seem to be half the population of Pine. (laughs) And there's only three of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the plot, folks. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, I saved you 370 pages of reading if you're not going to read it with my dramatic retelling of The Man of the Forest. 
Can I just tell you, that sounds like it belonged to Disney World. I, 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 won't, I won't stay too much longer on it, but I thought you did a tremendous job. I would take that ride. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All right. Let's talk about the book. And I've got a couple of plot and theme items, notes I threw down for us to have discussion. And let's start with the elephant in the room for pretty much every 100-year-old book we're going to read here, the racism. Now, I will say not to defend racism. <laughs> well, I'm glad you started out that <laughs> Which way. Which is always a good way to start. But for the most part, it was a lot softer and rarely negative in this book, certainly compared to some of the other older books we've read. They discuss the Mormons, although I don't think that's ever discussed negatively. They're generally viewed as being some of the most upright citizens in the area. And other than their polygamy, which is only brought up as a joke a couple of times, but you never meet any of the wives, even though they're all married to five or six women, they never bring it up other than as a joke. Interestingly enough, they kind of have a separation between regular folks and Texans who are all apparently extremely violent. But, but really honest, good fighters. Upstanding, yeah. <laughs> Extremely upstanding, honest, cold-blooded killers. That's <laughs> that's what it means to be from Texas. Only killing time. those who need it. <laughs> and then, of course, it talked about Native Americans as uh, Indians, Indians, savages, you know, a lot of the standard terms you'd expect of the period. But I would say that it really always framed them more as being peaceful but lazy and even then, so it's not so much lazy as being not interested in building up civilization, just being very comfortable because they often compare Dale, the protagonist, to an Indian in that he wanted to live in the woods, be alone. He was happy to live kind of in a cave lean-to subsistence living. So that was their general take on what the Native Americans did is they were not interested in building roads. They were not building aqueducts. They were not improving the water. They were just kind of living off the land in small peaceful communities, and they were known for their hunting and tracking skills. Again, I, they never said it as a positive, but they didn't really say it as a negative either. They just kind of referred to them as being either uneducated in the Western civilization type of way, or as being not interested in building up the community. So one of the things I really found interesting about, and I've got to hand it to him, I think his experience his real life experience from traveling and researching these books really came to play. One of his first famous books had Mormons as the antagonists. And in fact, the first publisher didn't really want to publish it because they were afraid that it was coming off so negative towards Mormons. I think that was a lasting impact for him. The more he traveled and the more he got to know people, the less he spent in creating these one-dimensional well, it's full of one-dimensional villains, but he didn't use those common tropes, the racism, the anti-religious sentiment as the easy avenue to do it. And I found that interesting because you could tell, I think, that he had, if not an inclination towards it, he certainly had an understanding of the different types of people you would find on a ranch, the ways that you would see them coming and going from places where they actually seemed as though they had lives. One of the areas I really enjoyed about the book is just what you said. It's almost accidentally three-dimensional as these characters. So that sort of incidental racism really takes a back seat to, you know, very passive, almost things you would read today, frankly. And I love that you pointed out the difference between the Native American way of living and the Western view of that is, well, they don't know what it's like to live in the Western way. They're not industrious. Because it was fundamentally different, and Dale does exemplify the difference in thinking between one way of life and another. 
you bring up a good point, and maybe it's because the author was well-traveled, that he didn't paint anyone with a very black-and-white brush. If you look at Snake Anson's gang, who at first, when I read Snake Anson, I'm like, all right, clearly won the bad guys. Great <laughs> great naming scheme. Nearly tells you they're yeah, the bad wow. guys. <laughs> but when Bo is kidnapped by them, they don't come across as just being mean for mean's sake. They're not just overly vicious. They are a group of outlaws who are real outlaws. They they are on the outside of the law. They can't go back to wherever it is that they committed their crimes. And so they are making a living just outside of society. But they still hold some level of code because they all have some sort of moral compass. And it differs depending on the members of the gang, obviously. The, the guy, Jim Wilson, who winds up saving Bo, clearly has a stronger moral compass than the rest of the gang. But he's also from Texas. He's those Texas. Guys, those guys are just the straight shooter, cold-blooded killers. Hard to go. And- <laughs> you know, but to be fair, the whole group is like, well, this is not the girl we wanted. So therefore, we're not going to mistreat her. No, you can let her untie her. She'll walk around. We'll make sure she gets food and water. and She gets her own lean-to, and we're not going to do anything bad to her. We're going to see if we can get a little profit out of this kidnapping because we're on hard times. But at no point did they really discuss killing her. They did talk, hey, if she happens to die, that does make things easier. But they didn't really talk about killing her or hurting her or doing anything worse to her just because they're the bad guy. So I appreciated that the bad guys weren't just made all bad for no good reason other than you need a bad guy. Yeah. Um, in the same way, Beasley is just profit motivated and he's kind of a jerk to everybody. It's not yep. like on the, I'm on the, I'm on the bad side and all the bad guys are on my side and they're all part of my team. I'm going to defend them because I'm the bad guy. No, he's like, I'm a coward and I'm going to use people. I'm going to use you. I'm going to use him. I'm going to use everybody hoping that I can get away with it. And so while not a real deep writing of the characters, you're right in that they are accidentally three-dimensional. They're yeah. accidentally more real than I think a lot of other quickly written novels might be. I mean, you could almost see these as people that Zane may have passed, right? And he said, oh, that guy, that's a heck of a name. And I, I see a character like this. And it's almost as though he wrote it in. Now, now, I think this kind of trips us into the next section here, though, where you've got accidental three-dimensional characters. I don't think he devotes enough time to making them fully fleshed out 3D characters. Because I think really this book and the intense sense that I took away from it is not about the characters. I mean, it's weird in a way you've got plot, but plot seemed to me like more of the gasoline that was driving the car on the path towards describing the foothills of Arizona and the train tracks and the beautiful scenery. It seemed like that was why he wrote this book. I would agree. I would think that the plot was the container for what he really wanted to talk about, which is two things. One, it's the beauty of the West, the majesty of the West, and the majesty of how the West was won. It's one item. The other item, and we'll talk about this briefly, is his natural philosophy of, you know, how do you combine civilization with the natural striving of everything to want to live and live through killing and what's right and what's wrong in a natural sense versus a civilized sense. All of which is, in my opinion, poorly written, (laughs) coming out of a character who he wanted to be the protagonist, but also winds up being almost a secondary protagonist in the second half of the book. 
which which was kind of disappointing. But you know, to go back to that whole how the West was won, they brought up several times this whole, well, the West needs to be won by tough, hard fighting men who break in there and they're all ruthless and killers with a heart of gold, but ruthless killers. And then after they've been there 20, 30 years, the woman folk and the children folk can come out and finish civilizing the place. So the guys can show up and they can maybe remove some people we don't want in that area and they can build up some fences and some houses and, you know, redirect a creek or two. And then it'll become a home when the women show up. And that's winning the West in a nutshell, in an oversimplified manner as to why, quite frankly, these two girls were trained out to the West because, well, there's a life out there and they're going to help civilize the West now. It's phase two of expansion of the country. And that was really interesting. You know, and what I really found interesting about that as well, because you're 100% right, I think there's a point where when you're so steeped in American culture, these tropes are tropes. You recognize them for these archetypes. It's almost hard to see them as their own literary facets or their own stories on their own merits after a while, or at least it is for me, because you're so used to seeing them, how the West was won, the tough guy, the gunslinger, the town, the the different characters. I had to get myself out of it a little bit, which I don't think I ever completely did. What I didn't realize was that Zane Grey was the originator of so much of that. So the raw elements of the classic Western really draws from this. And what you're describing, what you sort of bring up there, you know, how the West was won, basically, was in some ways almost invented by Zane Grey in this way. Now, it was reflective of things that were going on, but it was only a reflection. It was not a true tale. And I think a lot of Americans, when they were reading this, are flipping through this book thinking, man, that's what the West was like. Now, they knew it was fiction, but most of them had never been that far out. You know, this is still early in the the country's exploration there. A lot was still rough. And this is what people kind of imagined it to be in an idealized version. And as much as we know, that's kind of not sort of really, maybe sometimes in some ways, this was a lot of the first touch for people when they were reading this book. So I honestly didn't realize it going into it, how much of that Western archetype actually draws from what he was writing down for the first time in these novels. You know, and I don't even mind that so much. I think if you ask a lot of people, what are medieval times like? If they've read fantasy novels, they'll use that as their building block for what they think it was like to live in castles with knights and, and a princess and random kings and lords and dukes and the peasants. And, and they would use literature that is wrong, that is not an accurate depiction. So if we view Western more like another subgenre of fantasy or just i mean and it is it, i mean it's 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 a genre of fiction then i don't have a problem with it you just have an idealized world you've separated from the real world and now you put characters in it and that's fine that's what all fiction is mm-hmm. i think that him by which i mean zane gray being one of the founders of the western genre does make you have to review some of his works in a different light I think about someone like Tolkien, and let's be honest, while he was an amazing author and The Lord of the Rings is fantastic, not everything he wrote I would consider to be tight, to be well-written. I mean, he was kind of guy who who was like, why use five words when 40 would do? (laughs) And so when I started to think about that, I could see some of that in this, except for the fact that Tolkien then, for what he really published, went back and edited it and edited it and cleaned it up. Whereas 
Mr. Gray had a different opinion of that, of that what I've put down is what I've put down, and thus it shall be published. And so I think that if you compare the two, founders of genres, you're going to have a very idealized, unrealistic expression of the real world, if that makes sense. You know, I, I again, I think you're spot on with this. Isn't this great? We just have a podcast where we agree all day. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, Why are we're you? both right? Oh my goodness! We're both right, right all the time. We are. No, no, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when great minds get together. They think as one. So the first thing that struck me when I was reading this book. Now, as John knows, I am a huge, huge fan of Tolkien. Was Tolkien? The writing, when I was first reading the few pages, beautiful writing, really. It was very evocative. It really lets you luxuriate. And it reminded me very much of the sort of travel logging that Tolkien does, right? So there is a plot there, but you can spend 10 pages in The Hobbit, which is a pretty short book, walking around a forest <laughs> and describing spiders and what they look like and butterflies flying overhead. Now, there's a limit to that because you do have to get back to the plot. As you mentioned, Tolkien would edit and edit and edit. Well, you and I are also familiar with some famous fantasy authors, you know, Robert Jordan. Let's look at George R.R. R. Martin. So these are people who, when they were first writing, they get famous, they're, they're sort of new into the field, and they have editors. And that keeps their writing pretty concise, thrilling, reading, quick moving, interesting, but also very evocative of a world, which is essentially what Zane Gray was doing. As they got more famous the writing balloons. No one can edit them. They just keep writing and writing. And frankly, they're not advancing a plot. They're not keeping the world as an interesting place to be. Now, I'm not saying that's what, what Zane Gray did because I think he's not he's not as bloated as a George R.R. R. Martin has gotten or as Robert Jordan did. But he, I think, fell victim to that exact sense of, well, I'm writing what I'm writing and this is what I want. I don't necessarily think and it gets back to that point you said. We had a protagonist, and then we lost the protagonist halfway through the book. He never quite goes away, but the energy of the book really gets suctioned away because when Zane Gray was writing it, he just said, oh, no, this is more interesting. I'm going to go write about that. Oh, this is kind of fun. Let me write about that. The steps that the girl was riding her horse over. And I think he lost his way. Whereas in the first, let's say, 100 pages, I think he was pretty tautly writing. Yeah, I thought the first chapter of Dale in the woods, and then he goes and stops at the cabin, and he's hiding, and Snake Anson shows up. And, and I remember messaging you thinking, this is going to be a very interesting book, very different from the previous book, and and I was ready for an exciting ride. But what I found was that the tone and the pace was inconsistent. I don't necessarily mind that you have periods in every book where you have a fast period and a, and a slower period and a fast period, but it was so jarring and so inconsistent that I had trouble kind of continuing to read the book. Sometimes it would make such a sudden shift. I would actually put the book down and be like, I'll restart later because I'm not ready for such a jarring shift in narrative. So that was disappointing. And I could see, like you said, if you had given the manuscript to somebody and they said, boy, that's a quick jump from this whole bow's in danger and she barely escapes and five men are dead and there's a roving cougar to... Helen's in her dining room just thinking about what might be happening with Bo. You know, it was such a quick shift again that I was disappointed. Further, I think that if you want to talk about fantasy novel novelists to compare it to, Terry Goodkind, who wrote the Sword of Truth series. Again, first book was one of the best fantasy novels I've ever read. And they got, in, in this podcaster's opinion, 
progressively worse as they went on. And part of that is because the book went from being a great story that happened to have some underlying themes to the plot being a container for themes he wants to talk about, huge, massive socialism themes he wants to talk about, and occasionally we'll have a wizard with a sword. And and that's what I felt about Dale sometimes is that, and I have a note later on where I wrote, is Dale the Western Mary Sue? Because when he first starts reading about him, this guy's an expert at everything. He's the most quiet of men. He can sneak up on anything. He can hunt anything. He tames all of the animals. Everyone wants his advice constantly. As he walks through town, he's berated with requests for help. He's this invincible guy. And then we drop him halfway through because we got done with him expounding his natural philosophy. When he decides that after 10 years in the woods, I guess I'm wrong. I should probably just go into town. And I'm like, okay, I guess you're wrong. We'll just go into town. (laughs) Now, way to just destroy your main character. So that was disappointing. He went from Mary Sue to worthless character. (laughs) You know, I have to say, you brought up the cougar. And I just want to make a little side note. The first thing that really stuck out to me. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I've been watching these cartoons with my son, but I was playing him the Tailspin theme song the other day from the 80s and 90s. And of course, this is based on the Jungle Book, the Roger Kipping. Well, the the cougar, and, and frankly, the whole character of Dale reminds me of nothing more than Mowgli and these different animals that he sort of grows up with and does. And as I was reading about Zane Grey, the Jungle Book, Roger Kipling was one of his big influences. Okay. And which I didn't know, but you can kind of get a vibe. Now the challenge with that, like you said, I totally agree about the Mary Sue part. You can't have a character that's just so good at everything. And by the way, at various points in the book, at least three times that I counted gets into this highly philosophical discussion for no, no fewer than two or three pages at a shot about the meaning of life and what God is and how God is part of nature. Okay. I haven't met many men of the West of the wild, in all fairness. I've been to California. That's not so wild anymore. I I have to imagine that this poet, philosopher, animal tamer, man among men, fantastic shot, who lives in the wild but could easily live in the town, ladies man, is maybe a bit much to shove into one guy. It's just a little too much. <laughs> so part of me was glad it toned down. But then again, going back to editing, in that case, never build him up and then have him, one, not rescue Bo, two, not take out Beasley. There's two main like antagonist plots that take place, and you're like, surely the man of the forest, the entire protagonist of this book, is going to solve one of them. And when he doesn't solve Bo's kidnapping problem, I'm like, okay, but he's going to go back and he's going to take care of the ranch. But no, a character we brought in – I guess the nice thing is he was brought in slowly – But you brought in really as a main character halfway through, became the main hero of the entire book. And made me wonder when I was thinking about that, is this where maybe some of some of the Western tropes come from? Is this people took this book and they cut out pieces. They made those in other stories, which goes back to I think a final thought of mine. Was this book really written from five or six scenes that Zane Grey had 
thought out in his head, written, and needed to connect them together in a book is that he had a gunslinger. He wants them to have a big fight and call out, you know, the boss hog, and the boss hog doesn't show up, so he tracks him down to his house and shoots him at the dinner table. That's a cool scene. Let's get that in a book. Oh, I also want a hermit, and he lives in the mountains, and he knows, and he can travel silently. Let's put that in the book, too. And so you have these different ideas, these different set pieces that he crammed into this book, and then use that as a container for some other natural philosophy on how the West was won, and then slaps a cover on it and publishes it. And because he is who he is, because he's famous enough, it becomes the number one best-selling book of 1920. Which, by the way, it shouldn't be. (laughs) (laughs) No offense, Zane, wherever you are. Uh, You know, it wasn't wasn't the worst book. I've got to say, though, comparing it to our two previous authors, even Mary Marie, one of the things I liked the most about Mary Marie was when Marie goes up to Boston and you feel the description that she writes of her bewilderment at the city, of the things she was going through. That particular part of the book really popped off. When Zane was writing this book, right at the start, you see the, the two women who are on a train who are heading out and it's her and her sister. And there's some wacky guy, right? The pseudo villain who's also on the train with them. But they talk about their life back when, and very, very briefly, well, they're missing their mother, they're missing their family back there. And I kept thinking to myself, man, if you had spent a little more time fleshing out some of these women, which were not, they weren't one dimensional. He did add a little bit of flavor to the two of them. I think it got well trodden by the end of the book, but he did have some different avenues that they went down, some of which were unexpected. But if he had spent more time really developing them, I think, honestly, they could easily have been the protagonists on their own. And in fact, when you look at, say, a true grit, you look at some of the successors to books like his that I think have really been successful. That's what they've done. They've shaved off some of the extraneous stuff. Like you said, instead of doing scene, 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 they blend it together into more character studies. And you've got to imagine that's the basis of a good Western. It's who they are. Why is the gunslinger the gunslinger? Tragedy in every story. And if you don't have tragedy and pathos and some mysterious depth to that character, and it's all out there in front of you, it's almost less of a Western and more of just, like you said, a couple scenes on a page. Yeah. So anyway, those are the themes I have. Anything else you uh, want to bring up? Well, the Mormonism was kind of funny. You don't, you just don't, you don't hear that often in books today. <laughs> no, when they're like, oh, it's, it's a bunch of Mormon cowboys out there. And it was, it was just so surprising to come across. When I think about it, I'm sure out West, there were a lot of Mormon cowboys. It just wasn't something I ever thought I'd have come across in this book. That Agreed. was a surprise. Uh, I guess one other thing I'll bring up is, and there's a character, I just left him out of my 10 sentence summary. Riggs, who was the jilted wannabe lover and wound up being such a weak character who made the same mistakes over and over again, almost in a, well, that scene didn't work. Let me try to write it again kind of way. Could have been eliminated from the book and wouldn't have changed the plot in any way whatsoever. And so that was, again, something I think an editor would have fixed. Either build him up to a real character, give him a real backstory, or just write him off and just have one of Anson's gangs mess up the kidnapping. And that would have been the exact same thing. That's right. You wouldn't have missed it. And he spent a good amount of time on the book. I view him like the worm tongue to Saruman. Yes. Worm tongue was a similar sort of character, but he was pushed to a limit. There was a tension to that character because you were waiting for him to snap or do something crazy. 
this guy never had that snap moment. Yeah, he's a bad guy and he's dead. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's how we roll in the West. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe it's like that. I don't know. <laughs> so to bring this to a conclusion, let's put this book on the GDD rating scheme here. As a reminder to our listeners, we have a grading scheme. Mike and I are going to give the book a score from one to ten. And I'd also like us to comment on whether or not we'd recommend this book. And as usual, Mike, the honor is yours, sir. Well, my friend, I would like to give it a four based on all the feelings that I had about this and maybe slightly influenced by the creepiness of the author. But look, he did write well. He had vivid passages. There were some beautiful parts to this. And I did read it and at least feel energized by it. So I'm going to give it a six. You know, I, I went back and forth because I think like we were just talking about, there are scenes in here that I really liked. It sounded right out of a classic Western was, and this was one of the original ones, you know, the drunk Las Vegas Carmichael just turning his back on the two men he had drawn on, watching in the mirror, then spinning around and shoot him. That's a cool scene. And in my head, I will remember that about this book. It had some interesting hunting scenes. Again, very different. And I would say inconsistent, but the scenes were well-written. The characters had some depth to them. But in final review, I don't think the book gelled well together as a book. So I'd give it a six. Now, in terms of what I recommend it, probably not to your average reader. I think if someone was a Western reader, I would say, you know what? Here's something you should read one of the, the prototypes for this genre, and you'll see a lot of the tropes that were grown into entire probably sub-genres of the Western uh, genre. Read this. Maybe you'll like some of the author and see where it came from, but more as a historic study than a really good book, much like reading some of the original fantasy post-Tolkien, but before it became a more fleshed-out genre. You read it because you want to fill out because you're a fan of that type of literature, so you want to learn about it. All right. And again, by the way, I just want to point out how much you and I agree. (laughs) And that's what podcasts are about. (laughs) Two guys agreeing about a book being okay. (laughs) I would listen to it. (laughs) All right. That wraps it up for tonight. Join us next month when we will review The Recreation of Brian Kent. A link to the book, as well as our contact information, can be found in the podcast description. Special thanks to our podcast host, Red Circle. To the Joy Drops for the intro and end credit music. And most especially to the Gutenberg Project. And until next month. Thank you and good night. Good night.